Good morning, everyone. We're so glad that you're here with us today. Welcome. Welcome to Smyrna Campus. We're glad you guys were there. Welcome everybody that's connected with us online. We're glad that you found us and connected there online. Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel there uh, so that you can get, you can set notifications and reminders there when we post videos. We want you to uh, be aware of that and always participate with us and connect with us there. We are in a series called Be Encouraged. And we're going straight through 2 Corinthians. So if you would, go ahead and be turning to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. That's where we're going to be today. 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 15. And uh, open up your Bibles, your smartphone, your tablet, pull it up there. Or we'll put it up on the screens for you as well. I love it when God's Word, when we pre- I, I love to preach series just through books of the Bible. Here, here's why. If I'm just preaching a series through the book of the Bible that I will have to talk about whatever's next in Scripture. It's not like you could say, Pastor Andy just picked that because he, he knows something about me or something that's going on in my life. No, it was just what we were talking about in that part of Scripture. So in this part of Scripture, Paul is encouraging the church at Corinth. Uh, he's telling them about, you know, he's happy to hear good reports of good things they're doing. But in this section, he addresses one area where they weren't quite doing what they needed to be doing. And it has to do with generosity. They weren't quite where they needed to be as far as generosity goes. And he's going to emphasize the fact they're doing really good in a lot of other areas. That's great. But this is an area they need to remember too. This is an area they need to focus on as well. It had been a really hard winter uh, one year in the Rockies and uh, uh, the, the snow just piled deeper and deeper and deeper and the temperature dropped below zero and just stayed there. The rivers froze over. The, the people were suffering that lived out in the remote areas there in the mountains. And so the Red Cross set out on a mission. They were using helicopters to fly supplies in to those remote areas to get them to the people that were stranded there in the deep snow. At the end of one long, hard day, they're flying the helicopter back to their headquarters, and they noticed one more cabin they had missed. It was halfway covered up with snow. There was just a little wisp of smoke coming out of the chimney, and even though they were tired, they thought, we better check. They're probably very low on supplies and need some help. Well, there were so many trees around the cabin, they couldn't land right there at the cabin. They had to land about a half a mile away. So they landed the helicopter. They loaded up their backpacks with supplies, and they trudged through waist-deep snow, and they got to the cabin. They finally knocked on the door, just totally out of breath. This little gaunt mountain lady answered the door. The Red Cross guy said, ma'am, he was huffing and puffing. We're from the Red Cross. And there was dead silence. And after a few minutes, the lady spoke up and said, son, it's been a long, hard winter. I just don't think we can give anything this year. (laughs) We've become accustomed to people asking for money, haven't we? People approaching us, and we're always a little suspicious that there's an ulterior motive there. Somehow they're trying to get something from us, you know, trying to get more from us than they should. And and especially with churches, and sometimes churches have brought some of that on themselves. They've not handled this well. And sometimes people think of the church as this uh, this entity that's only wanting their, their money And that's why they're trying to reach out to them or connect with them or or get them involved in the church so they can get their money. And and so we have this suspicion. And and I think the church at Corinth uh, had felt pretty good about themselves 
because after Paul's first letter, they had made a lot of changes and a lot of improvements. And they were probably feeling like, we're okay, we're we're doing great. But, But there was one area, like I said, where they weren't quite where they needed to be. And Paul writes in chapter eight uh, of this letter that he wants them to be encouraged to take care of this area of their lives too, to be generous people. And he emphasizes that it's not because he needs money. It's not because he's trying to get money from them for him. In fact, what he's doing right now is taking up an offering to help out some other Christians in Jerusalem that were suffering right now. That's that's what he was doing. He was going around the churches trying to get them to help out with that. It wasn't for Paul at all. It was to help out some others that were in need. And and yet he emphasizes that they need to be generous, not for Paul's sake, but for their own sake. You see, God's a generous God. It's important for us to realize all that we've been given by God, our Father, our Creator, how blessed we are. And here's the goal or what should be the goal of every Christ follower. Our goal should be to grow up to be like our father. He's a generous father. If we're going to grow up to be like him, then generosity in our lives is important. If we're going to be like God, if we're going to represent God well on the earth, then we need to be generous people ourselves. So in this section of scripture, I just want to read through here in chapter eight first, and then we'll go back and look at some particulars. But beginning in verse one, he addresses this area of the importance of generosity for them. Here's what he says. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. Since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in love we've kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich." And here's my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now, finish the work so that your eagerness, your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what God, according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it's written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. I want to stop there, and and, and let's look at three areas here that I want us to, to look at in this passage that revealed to us why they might not have been giving like they should and why it was important for them to learn this generosity that Paul is talking about. Let's start with the problem. 
that they were dealing with. It's the same problem we have dealt with throughout all of human history. The problem is materialism. We think of it as a modern day problem, but it's always been there in the history of mankind. Now, the materials have changed, but the problem hasn't ever changed. Materialism has always had a grip on us. Look again at verse verse, uh, seven. Here's what he said. He said, you excel in everything else, faith, speech, knowledge, complete earnestness, and love that we kindle in you. So they were checking off boxes like most Christians. You know, we think, well, I got to see how I'm doing. As long as I'm doing all right, uh, God's pleased with me. Everything's good. So we check off these boxes. Yeah, I'm doing okay with that, that, that. But one box that we struggle with, I think, in our culture today, just like they did then in the city of Corinth, is this temptation to be too attached to material things. And he's saying, you're excelling in these other things that I talked to you about, I wrote to you about, you've made the corrections, you've gotten yourself back on track on those things, but there's still this area you need to get on track in. It has to do with this generosity that he's talking about. See that you also excel in this grace of giving. Now look at verse 10 and 11. He says, here's my judgment about what's best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. So he's saying, I only expect you to do what your means would allow you to do. He's not, he's not haranguing people to, to give more than they are actually honestly able to give. That's not what he's doing. But he's saying you do need to step up to what you are able to do. And he reminds them that a year ago, they had started this appeal to help out their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. Now, the Jerusalem church had been what you might call the mother church, right? That's where it all started. That's where Christianity got its beginning. Uh, On the day of Pentecost, it's recorded in Acts chapter 2. And Peter preached that first gospel sermon. 3,000 who heard the message responded and they were baptized and added to their number. That was the beginning of the church there in Jerusalem back in Acts chapter 2. And now some years later, here's what's happened. The church is still there in Jerusalem and they had blessed a lot of other people and they had sent out people to other areas to take the gospel. But now in Jerusalem, there was famine. And in addition to the famine, there was persecution of Christians. You see, the mother church that got it all started, they were hurting now. They were struggling. Many of them, when they became Christians, their families cut them off completely. No inheritance, no help. Many of them lost jobs when they converted to Christianity because they were in a a predominantly Jewish community with people owning businesses were predominantly Jewish. And when you converted to Christianity, they would cut you off from everything. They were hurting. They were barely surviving. And a year ago, here's what the church at Corinth had done. They had done an initial offering to help out, but here's what they also did. It tells us in the next chapter, 2 Corinthians 9, 5, he says, I I thought it was necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements, he says, for the generous gift that you had promised. So that it will be ready as a generous gift and not one grudgingly given. You see, they had promised they were going to give a generous gift to help out their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. It's been over a year now. And guess what they haven't done yet? They haven't given the generous gift yet. 
So Paul's saying, here's what I'm going to do. I, I don't want this to be awkward for you. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send the brothers to you in advance of us coming to get that gift from you. You see, they were traveling around and getting gifts from all the different churches to help out the saints in Jerusalem. He said, I, I'm going to send some people in advance, like an advanced group there to, to help you remember your promise and to help you go ahead and get it together to give that generous offering so that when we get there, he said, I'm bringing some other people with me. I don't want it to be an embarrassing thing. When we get there, I don't want it to be it's like, oh no, here's Paul trying to get our money. Here, here's what I want it to be like. We're ready, Paul. We were so glad to be able to be part of this. We want to be generous and we've got it ready. Here's the offering. Here's the gift that we told you we were going to give. Isn't that better than last minute resenting having to give some money to something, right? We've got so many people here at Lakeshore that are so consistent and planning ahead and setting aside and committing to gifts that they give every week or every two weeks or whenever they get paid. Some of them have set up as a recurring gift online. Some of you uh, just send it in in the mail. Some of you bring it here to the services and put it in the offering boxes here at the church and you consistently do it. And, and it's not like you showed up and all of a sudden you thought, oh, oh they, they want an offering? Oh no, what am I gonna do? I, I hate that they always ask for an offering, right? That's not how it's working. You're not caught off guard. You're not surprised by it, right? It's not done begrudgingly. You've planned for it. You generously are consistent with it. That's what Paul's wanting for the church at Corinth. He says, I want you to know how important it is to be generous people. And generous people, they're not the ones that you have to, to, to harangue about doing it. They, they just do it naturally because they're generous people. I can tell you this, pastors around the world would love to never have to teach on giving again. They would love that. But you know why we have to? Because a lot of Christ followers aren't generous givers. They're not generous people. They haven't grown up to be like their father yet. And so they need to be taught. They need to be encouraged. They need to know what God's word says about this. So that they can learn. And that's what Paul's trying to do for the church at Corinth. We want you to know this is a good thing. It should be just a natural part of who you are as a child of God. Jesus taught a lot about this when he was on the earth. And in fact, he had more to say about this subject than any other subject he taught about while he was here on the earth. A lot of people don't realize that. But he had, he had much more to say about our relationship to the world and the material things of the world than he did any other subject while he was here. Because he understood that's where, that, that's where it revealed our hearts, where our hearts were. And so he did a lot of teaching on that. One is in Luke 12 and verse 15, he said this, watch out. Now, when Jesus says, watch out, what should you do? There you go. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. And he gave us this principle to live by that is so counter to the way everybody else is living in the world. Here's the principle. Life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. Oh, wait a minute. That is what life consists of, right? That's what the world tells us. That's what the culture tells us. That's how people are judged in this world. It's by the abundance of their possessions. How do you know if somebody's successful or not? What do you look for? The abundance of their possessions, right? That's how you judge it. That's how the world judges it. And yet Jesus is saying that's not the kingdom of God. That's not how it works. He's not saying possessions are bad or even that the abundance of possessions is bad. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that's not what life is all about. There's more to life than that. 
And we need to live like there's more to life than that. Because that's what allows us to be generous people like God. You can't be generous like God wants you to be if you believe life consists in the abundance of your possessions. You see, that philosophy leads to two worldly philosophies that are, have been predominant in the world forever. One is the philosophy of indulgence. If life does consist in the abundance of possessions, then what do I need to do with my life? I need to indulge myself. I need to get everything I can get. I need the latest, greatest, best all the time. I need to be the one standing in line before the iPhone is released to be sure I'm the first one to get it, right? I need to be the one that's, that's on the waiting list for the latest, greatest, best thing out there. I, I need to be sure I'm in the neighborhood that everybody says is the best neighborhood and my kids are in the school that everybody says is the best school. I need to have all the stuff if that's what life consists of. And I can't be happy if I don't. Nothing wrong with having any or all of those things, by the way. But the question is, could you be happy if you don't? You see, that tells you what philosophy you're living by. You're living by the, if you can't be happy without all the stuff, then you're living by the philosophy that your life consists in the abundance of your possessions. That's the philosophy you're living by. And Jesus says that's not what life is supposed to be about. It's not about the abundance of your possessions. So it leads to the philosophy of indulgence, but it also leads to another one that's becoming more prominent in our culture now, and that's socialism, the philosophy of socialism. If life consists in the abundance of your possessions, then the only fair thing to do is to be sure everybody has the same amount of possessions, if that's what life is about. See, it wouldn't be fair if life is about that for you to have more than me or for me to have more than you. And I ought to feel guilty if I do have more than you, by the way. Because life does consist in the abundance of our possessions. So that means you're valuing your life more than you value my life because life consists in the abundance of your possessions. That's what socialism is rooted in, friends. That that's what life is all about. And that's why everybody ought to have the same amount as everybody else. That's socialism. It's not Christianity. It's not. But it's being twisted today to make it sound like it is Christianity. That's not Christianity. Let me, let me ask you this. When Paul says in this passage that what he wants is for the Corinthians who have an abundance now to help out those who don't have an abundance, uh, is that saying he thinks everybody ought to have the same amount when he says that there be equality? That's not what he's saying. Here's what he's saying. He's saying equality in the kingdom of God is some people are going to have more than others, and what does that give you the blessing of being able to do? Help some other people. He's not saying everybody, when you put everybody on the same level, here's what ends up happening in every country that's tried to do that. The politicians have gotten wealthy and everybody else has grown, uh, they have grown their poor population many times over in every country that's ever tried to do that. Every single country that's ever tried to do it, that's how the way it's worked. Why? Because it was not intended to work that way to start with. Some people are going to be able to be blessed to have the ability to make more and have more. But the question is not, is that wrong or right? The question is, in Christianity, what does God teach us about what to do with that, whether we have a lot or a little? You see, he's talking about generosity no matter how much you have or don't have. That's Christianity. It's being generous people with whatever amount 
you do have. Here's what he says in 1 Timothy, Paul did in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 10. For the love of money, and this is a misquoted verse, of course, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now, when we say the love of money, here's where your mind goes because of what culture has told you to think. You think about rich people. And rich people are evil because the love of money has made them evil. That's what the culture is teaching you to think right now about wealth. Does he say the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil only for rich people? No. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for everybody at every economic level. That's what he's talking about. Can poor people do bad things for the love of money? Absolutely. It happens all the time. Robbing, stealing, killing to get money. They just want the money. They want the stuff so much they're willing to do those things to get it. Do wealthy people do bad stuff for money? Absolutely. If they love money more than they love God and love people, they'll do bad stuff to get money. It's not about the amount of money. It's about where your heart is. He's talking about the importance of generosity at whatever level you're on in your life. There was a guy who broke up with his girlfriend after a long relationship that they had had, and he regretted it a little while after they broke up, and he wrote her this letter. Dearest Lauren, I'm so sorry for the things I said. I've been unable to sleep since I broke off our relationship last month. I think about you day and night. Your absence is breaking my heart. And recently I've begun to realize that nobody can take your place. Sweetheart, I miss you so much. Please call me. All my love, Robert. P.S. Congratulations on winning last week's Powerball. (laughs) The love of money, right? can get us to do all kinds of things and it doesn't matter how much you have now if you think life consists in the abundance of your possessions you're living with the motivation of the love of money and it can cause you to wander from the faith that God wants you to have in him that's why generosity is so important because it keeps us from getting too attached to the things of this world it allows us to keep our dependence on God our love for God So the biblical philosophy is not socialism. It's also not self-indulgence. The biblical philosophy is stewardship and generosity. That's the biblical philosophy. Stewardship means whatever you have. You think you got a lot, great. You think you got just a little, great. You think, you know, somebody else has got more than you and, uh, you know, you don't like that, but here's what you got. Here's the thing about stewardship. Stewardship is whatever I have, I understand it doesn't belong to me anyway. It belongs to God. And my role is to manage it as a steward, manage it the way God wants it to be managed. Okay, that's what a steward does. He manages it the way the owner wants it to be managed. So whatever amount you have, you are a steward of that amount. And so you manage it the way God wants you to manage it. Now, God is a what kind of God? A generous God. So how do you think he would want us to manage his stuff? With generosity, right? with generosity because he's a generous God and he's the owner. How should we manage the owner's stuff with the generosity that the owner has? That's how, that's how we should manage the owner's stuff because he's a generous father. 
So that leads to what he does here in chapter 8, and that is the example that he gives them of the biblical philosophy of how to manage wealth, okay? And when he gives them an example of generosity, that's number two on your outline, the example of generosity, he picks a group of churches that you would never think he would pick. He picks the churches in the province of Macedonia to say, here's the example of generosity that I want you to know about that I want you to see, that I want you to emulate. You see, when we think of generosity in America, we think of wealthy people giving great big sums of money, don't we? That's who gets the attention. That's who makes the news. I I can tell you how you know if you think life consists in the abundance of your possessions. We just had two billionaires go up into space, right? Okay, hear me out. I've seen more and more people posting on Facebook. He could, either one of them could have uh, cured world hunger with that money instead of using it to go into space. Haven't you heard people arguing that? You know what that tells me? They're probably not very generous people themselves because they resent the fact that those people have that kind of money and can do that. The question is not what do those people do with their money? You're the Christ follower. The question is how are you managing the money God allows you to have? That's the real question. Are you being the generous person that God has called you to be? By the way, both of those men and their companies donate hundreds of millions of dollars to the charities they believe in every year. By by far more than any of us could ever give. Okay? So if you want to just play apples to apples comparisons, let's look at that. Okay? I'm not saying that I think it's a good use of money. I'm saying for us to be judging them is wrong if we're not, especially if we're not getting the plank out of our own eye and being the generous people God expects us to be, okay? Let's let's get back to what we need to be doing instead of pointing the finger at other people for not doing what we think they ought to be doing. So the example of generosity he uses is the Macedonian churches. Now, here's the thing about the churches in Macedonia. When, When Paul started this, effort to take up the special offering to help out the saints in Jerusalem. You know where he didn't go and ask for help? Macedonia. Why didn't he go to the churches of Macedonia and ask for help? Here's why. The famine had hit Macedonia too. And those Christians were struggling too. And it was a hard time for them too. And I think Paul was still looking at it from a little bit. See, he wasn't perfect. I think he's still looking at it from a little bit of a worldly point of view. It would be wrong for me to ask those people who are struggling to help out with this offering for our brothers and sisters in Jerusalem when they're struggling the way they are. I I don't even need to ask them to help. Listen, Listen to what he said. Look at verses one through five again. We want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. All right, so what they were able to do, he says it was by the grace of God that they were able to do it. And listen to what he said. Here's the example uh, of generosity that he wants them to see. In the midst of a very severe trial, now what description do you think would go along with a severe trial? Not what he says. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy. You see the connection? They're in the midst of a severe trial, and yet what are they experiencing? overflowing joy. How how can you do that in the midst of a severe trial? He didn't stop there. Here's what he went on to say. Their extreme poverty. What do you think would go along with extreme poverty? Here's what he puts with it. Their extreme poverty welled up with what? Rich generosity. (laughs) 
They're going through a terrible time. And yet, in the middle of that terrible time, their response was rich generosity. Listen to it. He goes on. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able. Okay. You think, good. They gave as much as they were able to give. Probably wasn't a lot, right? That's not where he stops. Listen to what he says. They gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. How do you give beyond your ability to give? He already told us by the what? Grace of God. You can do that. And then he says, listen to this, entirely on their own. In other words, we didn't even ask them to do this. We didn't even go to them with this appeal, but they heard about it. And entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. Did you hear the attitude they had? Entirely on their own. They feel like they're being left out of being able to be a part of this. They pleaded for the opportunity. Paul, Paul, please don't forget us. Let us help too. Let us be generous too. Let us make a difference for them too. You see what it means to be generous people? To have generosity in your heart? They didn't resent that other people had more to give. They just wanted to be part of it. They just wanted to do what God would give them the grace to do. To make a difference, to make an impact. Of all the examples Paul could have given of outstanding giving examples, who did he pick? There were about three churches we know about in the province of Macedonia, all struggling, who who set the example for every other church on how we should be generous people as Christ followers. We make all kinds of excuses, don't we, on why we can't do it, why we can't give. But when Paul gives us an example of what he's talking about when he says to be generous, he picks people that are in just as bad a shape as anybody in this room could possibly say you're in right now. And he says they gave what they were able and even beyond their ability, and they pleaded for the opportunity to do so. That is the heart of God. They exceeded expectations, he says. Listen to them, verse 5. They exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. How did they do it? They gave themselves first to God. That's how they did it. I know we don't like to hear this. It hits all of us. But here's, here's a good indicator of whether or not you've really given yourself fully to God. Are you being the generous person God wants you to be right now? That's a great indicator of whether or not you've given yourself first and fully to God. Is God first in your life? Is the kingdom of God first in your money, in your finances? Is the work of God having priority in your life, in your giving? If not, then maybe we haven't really given ourselves first and fully to God the way God wants us to give ourselves to him. Now, what's the motivation that the Corinthians had? What's the motivation Paul's saying all of us should have to do this, that the Macedonians obviously did have? What, what is it that the Corinthians need to have? Well, well, he shares with us what the motivation should be, and it's Jesus. Why should we do this? Because of Jesus. That's why. Look again at verse 8 and 9. I'm not commanding you. In other words, I can't actually make you do this, right? I, I can't come legally extract the money from you 
Now at Lakeshore, if we could, we'd probably set up some collection teams to go out, you know, and I get big, strong people with, you know, intimidating voices to go out house to house and, you know, but we can't do that. All right. So here, here's what he says. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your what? Of your love. He's connecting generosity with a test of the sincerity of what? Your love. Your love for God and your love for others. People talk about how we ought to love God and love people. That's great. Here's how you test where you're at on that. How generous are you being? Because that's the test of how much you love God and love others. How much are you willing to give up for them? Contribute to the cause for them. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Wow. He gave him the examples of Macedonians, but then he said, Let me bring this home to you. And the greatest example of all. This should be your response to what Jesus has done for you that you would be generous like this. Think about what he says about Jesus being rich. The Bible says in Philippians 2 that he, he was in very nature God, right? He, he's God. He's, he's God in heaven. And he emptied himself of that to come here for us, right? He gave up everything. And he was restricted and by being clothed in the flesh. He had to face all the temptations and struggles we face and yet not give into it because he couldn't sin and still pay for our sins. He went through all of that. And how did we respond? We beat him and spit on him and nailed him to a cross. That's how we responded to his generosity to us. So that he could give us Riches beyond our imagination. You say, well, I'm not rich. Yes, you are. So am I. I'm rich in forgiveness. How about you? That's something I can't buy. No amount of money can purchase for me. See, forgiveness comes through the blood of Jesus shed on the cross. I I couldn't ever pay that myself. I was totally dependent on him making that payment for me. And so are you. And if you know that forgiveness today, you are rich in forgiveness in Christ. We're rich in fellowship. We have fellowship with one another in Christ. But more than that, we have fellowship with God through Christ. We can dwell in his presence forever in heaven. We are rich in our inheritance that we have in Christ. We are rich in hope. Because we know this world is not all there is and that we have victory in Jesus for eternity. For our sake, he who was wealthy became poor so that we through him might become rich. And how he's blessed us. So if we want to claim to be Christ followers, then that's the kind of generosity we need to be living with. The example of the Macedonians... The example of Christ himself is how we need to be living our lives. Does that mean you can't have stuff? No, that's not what it means. It means you manage your stuff the way God wants you to as a generous person. You use it for the good that God wants you to use it for. 
I am very grateful for a lot of wealthy people in this world who understand this and use their wealth to do so many good things. But I'm just as grateful for every person who belongs to this church family who week in and week out and month in and month out make generous gifts to the work of the kingdom of God here in this place. Because through those gifts, people are bring, being brought to the knowledge of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It's changing their lives for all eternity because you were willing to be generous like Jesus is generous to you. So if there's a struggle in your life right now in this area of generosity, here's what it comes down to. Remember, the key was they gave themselves first to Christ. Maybe there's somebody here today who needs to make that step, take that step of giving themselves first to Christ. Surrendering your heart completely to him. If you're listening online, that's a step you need to take. You can message us and we'll follow up with you and help you and guide you in that step. If you haven't been baptized yet, if you haven't united with the church family yet, connected with the church home, let's pray together. Father, we thank you. We thank you that we have the example of Jesus and that Paul shared with us the example of the churches in Macedonia who, in the middle of a severe trial, were still able to be, by your grace, the generous people that you call them to be. I thank you for those people here at Lakeshore who, by your grace, are being consistently the generous people you've called them to be. It's enabling us to carry on the work of the kingdom in your name. Father, I pray for those who might be struggling with that right now. It's not easy because the world keeps telling us that life does consist in the abundance of our possessions. If we believe that, we won't ever live the way you want us to live. But if we can understand that life is more than that, if we can understand that you created us and designed us to be in your image, the generous people, as you are the generous God that you are, then I pray that anyone today that needs to take that step of giving themselves first to you so that you can transform them into the generous people you want them to be, I pray today they would be willing to take that step. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.